As I was thinking about this passage for today, the only thing that I could think about is those definitive moments in relationships. Uh, matter of fact, we have a couple here today, uh, Joe and Nicole, who are going to be celebrating their one-year dating anniversary next week. Yeah. And the reason we know this is because a year ago this Sunday, today, was Nicole's first time at the plant. And uh, the chemistry began last week. Maybe that's what brought her back to uh, the plant. Joe, thank you, Joe, for the power of love, the power of one. Um, but there's different aspects of the beauty of relationships. I mean, think about it, guys, okay? Let's put it on the guys, not on the girls. Think about that time when you, when you like that first girl in junior high. Do you remember their name? Okay? And if your wife's sitting next to you, you're going to be like, no, I don't remember her name. I didn't like any girl except for my wife. Never went on a date, you know? But remember that person. And remember that time when you went to that person in junior high and you're like, so, what are we? And it's like this crossroads that you're like, are we something or are we just friends? And who wants to be friends? It's like, come on, give me a break. There's that crossroads. So that's junior high. Then you get into high school. And you start getting this different feeling for someone. And, and it's that love bug. And you're dating someone for a long time. And, and all of a sudden you're thinking, I think I love them. I think this might be like my first love. And you, and you start thinking about it. And, and the big crossroads is when you approach that person and you say, I love you. And what are you hoping to hear back? I love you too. Or I really like you as friends. And there's all these crossroads that we go into. But then there's that final definitive moment in the relationship of a couple. And it's a moment when you're like, I think I want to spend the rest of my life with this individual. And so as a guy, you, you get all these emotions and you set up this huge plan and, you, and you're ready and you're going to ask them, will you marry? Will you spend the rest of your life with me? And I'll never forget the day that I asked Sue to marry me. We went down to the beach and we spent the whole day together. And the whole day, she's like freaking out. She's like, what's wrong with you today? I'm like, nothing. Just kind of like freaking out, like everything was all over the place. I was scattered minded and, and I had the ring hidden. And, and we went down to the beach that night before dinner and, and I had this whole thing planned out that I was going to walk her out to this jetty and I was going to sing her Elvis with this whole idea that I was going to say, will you marry me? And I'll never forget that that was a huge crossroads. Now, deep in my heart, I knew she was going to say yes. Of course, that's why I asked her. I would have been crazy if I didn't know that. But I'll never forget that that was not only a crossroads to come to my mind, but the crossroads was not what was happening in me, but it was what was happening with us. And it's very interesting because when you follow the life of the disciples, from the beginning of Mark to the end of Mark, 
There are certain definitive moments in their relationship with Jesus that spoke volumes to who Christ was to them. And it's very interesting because when you get to Mark chapter 8, it is halfway through the book of Mark, and it's leading up to the crucifixion. So let's read this passage together. Mark chapter 8, verse 27 through 30. Jesus and his disciples left Galilee and went up to the villages near Caesarea Philippi. As they were walking along, he asked them, Who do people say I am? Now let's first look at this first question. Now here's what's significant. They were in Galilee. And what happened last week? Someone tell me what happened last week. What did Jesus do? He healed a blind guy. And what was significant about that healing? What was different from that healing compared to any other healing that Jesus had ever done besides spitting in his face? Two times. The first time he he spit on him, he saw people that looked like trees. But the second time when he laid his hands on him, he saw the world clearly. And so now as they were going from Galilee, and here's what's significant about Mark chapter 8, is that they were on their journey to Jerusalem for the crucifixion. So the next part of all of Mark from 8 on is preparing for the crucifixion. And so they leave Galilee and they have a 25-mile journey. And what we're going to see over the next few weeks is that on this journey, they're going to continue to be doing amazing ministry. But even more so, that 25 miles from going from Galilee to Caesarea Philippi, to Capernaum, to Judea, to Jerusalem, that there's going to be a lot of conversations along the way. And one of the things that you'll see when you really study the book of Mark is that yes, there's healings. Yes, there's deliverance. Yes, there's signs. Yes, there's wonders. Yes, there's presence of God and His kingdom all over the place. But what's so unique about Mark is these little snapshots that Jesus stops and has with the disciples. Always a teachable moment. Always speaking volumes to them. Always stopping them and letting them see the grander picture of just the physical manifestation of God's presence. And so as they're walking along, He asks the question, who do people say I am? It's a fair question, right? He knows that as he is teaching and as he is doing all these signs and wonders that people are are murmuring. So who is this guy? Who is this guy? Verse 28. Well, they replied, some say John the Baptist. Some say Elijah. And others say, you are one of the other prophets. Now here's what's significant. If you look back into the life of John the Baptist, all of them believed that he, John the Baptist, was probably the Messiah. Everyone believed that John was this prophet 
Matter of fact, this great prophet, a significant prophet in the life of Israel. But what separated John from being the Messiah? Death. Death. He died. And the Messiah was supposed to do what? Live forever. So now here's Jesus. And the crowds who all went to John, all who heard of John, all who heard of these great prophets, they were saying now, could this be John the Baptist resurrected? Could this be Elijah resurrected? Because that was the hope. That one of these great prophets would come back from the dead to reveal the glory of the Lord. But then there were others who also said, you know what? It's probably not John he was beheaded. It's probably not Elijah because he was around like forever ago. But we know that he is significant. And he is a great prophet. Now here's what's significant. When we look at all world religions, Buddhism, Hinduism, Islam, everything, Mormons, the Church of Latter-day Saints, everyone believes that Jesus is a great prophet. Now listen to that. Because in our culture today, we have people that we know who are Hindus, who are Buddhists, who are New Age, who are now, matter of fact, Church of Latter-day Saints is becoming very big in this area. The Church of God of Christ. All these different either sects of, of, of Christianity or world religions who don't believe Jesus as the Son of God. Each one of them believes that Jesus is significant. Not God's Son, but a prophet. And do you know what separates this whole, this whole issue in Islam of who Jesus is? The reason that the Islamic world has a problem with Jesus is not that he was a great prophet, but whether or not he was the Son of God. Do you know that? That's the separation of Islam. It's not whether Jesus was a prophet, it's whether or not Jesus is the Son of God. And if any of you have ever read the Quran, which I had to read in college, it talks about the beauty of who Jesus is. One who healed, one who did great things, one who did miraculous signs and wonders. And in many ways, Islam glorifies the prophetic nature of Jesus. But there comes a point in the Quran, and this is significant, that it says... That if, G- if anyone believes that Jesus is the Son of God, it is punishable by death. Is that interesting? On one side of the Quran, they, they almost glorify this prophetic nature of Jesus. But on the other hand, it's the issue of whether or not He is the Son of God. Now, why do I know this much about Islam? Two reasons. One, I had to study world religions in college. And two, one of my closest friends in all the world 
was growing up Islam, and now he's a follower of Christ. And we used to have conversations about this in high school and in college, and even to today, we talk about this tension of, of Islam and faith. And so when people went to Jesus, all throughout history, especially in Jesus' presence, they were wanting Him to be something significant to them as an individual. Can He be my life changer? Can He be my healer? Can He be my deliverer? Can He speak words of wisdom to me that will change the direction and the course of who I am? And it's very interesting because as Jesus is listening to them, He's listening to the same things that were being said about John. Now let me help you out with this passage. Many of us who have read this passage, we know the next question. Who do you say I am? But do you know where this passage gets lost? In the context of the conversation. Oftentimes when we look at this passage, we just, we just look at the question that's being posed to the disciples, correct? Right? That's all we think about. Well, Jesus is going to ask them a question, and he wants to know their response. But this passage gets lost in translation because the place that Jesus is asking them has all the significance in the world. Caesarea Philippi was a place that they were walking through. It was a city. And as they went through the village and as they're going to the city, Caesarea Philippi was known to be a very pagan culture. And within that city, there were many, many gods that were being worshipped. Many gods. Matter of fact, Herod the Great had, had built this huge temple in honor of Augustus. Because kings and leaders back then were like, were like gods. So Herod the Great, in honor of Augustus, built this huge temple to honor Augustus. So picture this. The question that is being posed to the disciples is as they are walking through a pagan environment, as they're passing by the temple, to Augustus. And then there's two other temples that are there. One is for the, the god Pan, P-A-N. He was a mythological creature that was half goat and half human. He was the god of the mountains and of the shepherds. Because herding was such a part of their culture, and so they worshipped the god of Pan, that, that the animals would be taken care of, that the mountains would be green, that the, the water would be flowing, that there would be enough rain, and so they would go to the, the temple of Pan, all these people, so that their needs would be provided for. So maybe on one side of the street, you have the temple to Augustus. They're walking for a few more minutes, and then there's the temple of Pan. There's also another temple to Zeus there. And so as they're walking through this area, 
this context. And as they're looking around, and maybe, just maybe, they were having a conversation on what was going on in this area. In the view of religion, and the view of faith. And as they're watching everyone, as they're watching the tables that have the animals that are going to be sacrificed in one of these temples, that's when Jesus poses the question, who do people say I am? Because we all know that we worship something. Now doesn't that context kind of change the question? They weren't walking through the mountains. They weren't alone in a valley. But Jesus is always specific in all of our context. I mean, think about it. When do we pray for God to be our provider? When we're in great need to be provided for. Right? When do we ask Jesus to be our emotional stability? When we're depressed. And when you look all throughout the gospel, Jesus is always speaking to the context of the person. And I love that about Jesus. Because oftentimes we go to church. And we feel like this dude does not know my context. Correct? But the inter- interesting thing about this is Jesus then turns to the question to them Who do you say I am? He turns to the 12 and he says, okay, I've heard what, what other people say that I am. I hear that other people think that I'm a prophet. Some think that I'm John. Some think that I'm Elijah. But now let's get intimate. Who do you say I am? It's in view of those questions that I brought up in the beginning of the message. At the end of the day, who do we care that thinks the most and the highest of us? The people closest to us. I mean, even in the business world, this is a a true philosophy of business. Think about Apple. Think about Google. The most innovative, creative, high-tech industries in all of the world. If you've ever watched a documentary on either company... The people they care most about and they value the most critique from is their employees. They put everything through the mill with them, everything through the grind, because they're thinking that if our employees love what we're producing, then everyone else has to. And so when you go to Google, it's basically like a village They have everything and anything that you want to make sure that their employees are taken care of for and that they own it more than anyone else. And this is the same thing with Jesus. You've seen me. You've watched me. You've heard me. 
You've been in my presence. Who do you say I am? And I think we take that question for granted. I think in the busyness of our life, we take that granted, the question for granted, not asking ourselves, who is Jesus to me? Let's look at the response. Peter replied, you are the Messiah. Now, did everyone respond? No. The only one who steps up on the stage is Peter. And Peter says, you are. Not we believe, not we think, but Peter steps up and he specifically identifies, you are the Messiah. The one who was written about in the Old Testament. The one who was going to bring salvation to the Israelites. The one who was going to free the Israelites of their oppressors of Rome. You are the one. And this is before they even know what's going to happen to Jesus. This is before they ever know that Jesus is going to go to the cross. This is before they ever know that he is going to be brutally beaten and mocked. This is before they could ever even imagine of leaving Jesus. And Peter stops. And he says, you, you are the Messiah. Now here's what I love about Mark chapter 8. And this is so significant. How long do you think these men have been with Jesus? Just guess. How long? Less than three. Less than three. Has it been a week? Has it been a month? Has it been a year? Has it been two? They're probably about almost year three in Mark chapter eight. And this is the first time Jesus stopped them and said, let's talk about it. Who am I? And how often is it that people we know, there's this expectation that we expect them to believe on the spot, in the moment, right now, right here, make the decision, or else. But do you know what the beauty of this whole passage is? is that Jesus invited his disciples to belong with him ever before they believed. Do you know that? He invited them to belong to him, to journey with him, to teach with him, to follow him. He even empowered them to do signs and wonders. He said, guys, go in groups of two. Go heal, go teach, go deliver, and come back and let's talk about it. Let's, let's debrief. But after almost three years of following Jesus, 
He says, so who do you think I am? And we are under this impression that we are supposed to fully know Jesus overnight. Correct? And that the moment that we say this magical prayer, this magical prayer that I never need to keep following Him, but I have my eternal security that I'm set, and now I go back living my life. But that is not at all what true discipleship is. Discipleship is engaging in a relationship with the living God through Jesus Christ and the power of His Holy Spirit. And it's walking with Him and journeying with Him and growing in Him and knowing Him. But there comes a point in all of our lives that we're confronted with the question, who is Jesus to you? Who is he? Is he your genie? Is he your get out of jail card free? Is he the dad that you're always angry at because he doesn't do what you expect him to? Or is he kind of like the happy guy that you just want to hear more and more about? He's like a friend. You know that song, I am a friend of God. It's like, uh, uh. Like we just kind of hang out and we play wiffle ball together, me and Jesus. But there has to come a point in our journey of faith that we literally ask the real question the real question not the evangelical did you say the magic prayer thing no there has to be a time that you ask yourself Jesus who do I actually believe you Is he your savior? Has he rescued you from the curse of sin and death? Do you actually believe that Jesus Christ went to the cross to take away the sins of all mankind? Do you believe that he's your savior, that, that he's the one that comes in and, and cleanses you of all of your unrighteousness? And he's the bridge builder so that you can have an intimate relationship with the living God. Do you believe that he's Savior? Do you believe that Jesus is our sanctifier? That the moment that you recognize that he's come to take away all my sins, all my unrighteousness, now that I'm going to be in a relationship with him, that he is progressively transforming me. Do you believe that he has that power? Do you believe that when you come to that space that, that you need him as your savior and you get on this relationship with him that he's going to progressively change you and you're no longer going to be that person you were five years ago, ten years ago? Or is he just your insurance card? 
He's my savior. He's my insurance card. Because if he's literally your savior, then he's your sanctifier, your progressive changer and transformer in your life. Do you actually believe that Jesus is healer? I love the honesty of the conversations that I have during the week. I was talking with a, with, with a buddy of mine, a new buddy of mine, who we meet with pretty regularly, and, and he says, I've never believed in the supernatural before. I've always believed in God, but, but I've never taken this stuff serious. I said, but that's the game changer. The game changer is, is that God manifests himself through the power of his Holy Spirit to not only bring heart transformation, but life transformation. That the same God that raised Jesus from the dead, the same God that raised Lazarus from the dead, the same God that made the blind see, is the same God that can physically heal today. Do you believe that? Mark chapter 5, Jesus mentally and emotionally changed and transformed the guy who was running around butt naked in the cemetery to the point when people saw him, the first thing they couldn't realize was that first he had clothes on and second he was sane. It says that in Mark chapter 5, he was sane. Do you believe that? That's a game changer. You see the progression? If you believe that Jesus is Savior, truly Savior, then He's your sanctifier, the one who brings progressive change. But that inner change is something that's supernatural. It's not tangible. It's not logical. It makes no sense at all. But lastly, do you believe He's your coming King? Do you honestly believe that Jesus is coming back? Do you honestly believe in this, in this broken, messed up world? That He's not going to leave us here. But He's coming back for us. And everything we're doing is preparing to see our living God. Do you live every single day like you're preparing to see Jesus so that when you stand before Him, you recognize Him? Is that how you're living your life? Do you honestly believe that when you study the Word and you're in His presence in prayer and worship, that He's giving you the sense, this presence, this imagery of who He is, that when you see Him on that day, you'll be like, I've seen you all along. But here's our problem, and shame on us. Just like the people in Jesus' time, we try to tame him. Jesus is good for us when we want him. When we realize that we're broken and wretched, we say, Jesus, be our purity, be our hope. But then we become like immature children and do whatever we want. We say, I want all of you, God, during worship. I want you to fall in this place. But don't tell me how to do my job. Don't tell me what I can and cannot look at. 
Don't tell me what I can and cannot do with people. Don't tell me what I can and cannot do with my money. Don't tell me what I can and cannot do with my children. Don't tell me. And what we do is we tame him. We try to saddle him. We try to bridle him. We try to ride him and control him to do what we want him to do. So here's my question today. Who is Jesus to you? Who is Jesus to you? Because that's the game changer. Do you know the moment that Jesus, uh, that Peter said, you are the Messiah? Something went in his soul. Something shifted. Something changed. Something was more than identified. Something was embodied and believed. You see, what you really believe in is what you actually act on. What you value most is where your life follows. What you trust more than anything else is what you hold on to in the moments of crisis. And this is not only a question for us today. This is a question we need to be asking ourselves repeatedly and repeatedly. Jesus, who are you to me? So here's what I want you to do. We're going to go into a time of communion. I want you to think about this. I want you to chew on this. And as you come to the Lord's table, only come up if you can honestly say from the bottom of your soul, Jesus, you are my Lord. And if he's not, then do yourself a favor. Sit there and wrestle with it. Why aren't you? Why aren't you 